you know, I'm not gonna lie. I feel like I've been resisting this season, pretty much since I started unknowing. When was that, two years ago? Because the truth is, I'm tired of talking about Christianity and theology. I, I know that that was kind of how most of you got to know me on Another Name for Everything with Richard Rohr, the podcast that I was on before this one. But I think the impetus for me in wanting to start unknowing was because there was a shift in my belief system, a composting that took place from ideas, conversations, and belief, uh, a set of beliefs into embodiment, a digestion, an actual chemical process in which I just wanted to create and be about creating. I wanted to be about the making. I didn't want to be about the talking or even about the precious preserving. I just wanted to make room for the what could be, to break through. And for me, that was a return, a remembering, a being membered to myself as an artist, as as a real fleshy feeling female who happens to create like a hurricane <laughs> in multiple different facets of life and is trying to hold all of those things together as harmonizing, as belonging, all these different versions of me. And maybe I gave some of you a little bit of whiplash, right? Because you're like, you know, chilling with me on another name for everything with Richard Rohr podcast. And then all of a sudden it's like, whoa, what is what is Brie doing now? She's like making music and painting apparently. Uh, and, you know, to be honest, I got a lot of heat. We live in a world that would rather create a series of binaries out of everyone. <laughs> You're allowed to be this, but not a that, and definitely not both. So I suppose when folks encountered me as a real fleshy feeling female who is also a flaming four on the Enneagram and loves to make music and art and paint and all sorts of other things that it maybe created a bit of a dissonant paradox for them. But if you've been paying attention, you see that I'm just living out the premise of everything I've been talking about on this show. I'm just trying, or at least I aspire to live a courageous life of a maker. I want to be someone who's invested in creative participation, in welcoming what could be, expanding the categories of how we see ourselves and each other and how we relate. And I think I've been pretty transparent with you all. I don't really know what I am anymore. I don't know that I really fit into the category of Christian, and I'm definitely not trying to rescue the sinking ship of Christianity. But I am curious about reframing these ideas or these identifications that we have spiritually from being camps or categories that we belong to or that we identify with to being something that we compost, something that we're willing to digest into our bodies, not for identity, but for creativity. So in the wake of Roe versus Wade being overturned, I kept having all of these conversations with friends about the critical moments in which Christianity became empire, in which that empire, that version of belief as political dominance, how that became the foundations of our country. And my friends kept saying, you know, not everybody knows this stuff. A lot of people don't know the very, very human choices that were made that turned a revolutionary mystical movement into 
literally an empire of dominance. And so I was challenged by one of my friends to have these conversations on unknowing, to maybe take you on a journey in which we explore how Christianity became empire, but then a little bit more personally to bring you into my journey of how I've digested even contemplative Christianity or or mysticism (laughs) into a radical reverence of creativity, a more ecological worldview, which is sort of the unknowing landscape that I'm in now. And as soon as it became clear that this was the direction for this season, I knew exactly who I wanted to begin this journey with. Brian McLaren is no stranger to the Unknowing Podcast. He joined me during season one. He is an author, a speaker, activist, and public theologian. His newest books are Faith After Doubt, which we discussed on season one of the podcast. And his most recent book, which we're going to be discussing on today's episode, is called Do I Stay Christian? So I was really excited to be able to have him on the show to kick off this journey of season three of Unknowing. The podcast has always had a tagline, which is letting go of what we think we know to make room for what could be. And in this case, I wanted to do that with religion, the religion in particular that has most shaped the formation of this country in the hopes of liberating within us a more inclusive, grounded, embodied, and ecological worldview. So let's dig in on season three of Unknowing, Composting Christianity. So, Brian, a lot of stock is given to identities, and I wonder if part of what is rupturing for us in this moment is any notion of fixed identity, of static identity, where we seem to be moving is into a more fluid, ecological, permeable, evolutionary reality where our becoming is replacing what we are the static notions of being that could so easily become affixed to a term. So I get asked all the time, you know, what I am, what I believe. And the truth is, I feel like they're trying to pin a butterfly that's already in flight and call it caterpillar. (laughs) Like even the idea of affixing myself to like one term in a static way feels foreign or feels like, you know, something past So the best I can do is I say, well, uh, I'm an erotically creative, ecological contemplative, uh, making loving, living human who believes the best critique of the bad is the creativity or the creation as an active, embodied, pleasure-filled participation of the better. (laughs) Yes, Uh, it's not bad. (laughs) That's a mouthful. You said a lot, but that's great. But if somebody asks, that's what they get. (laughs) You know, and I I sometimes refer to God as the community formerly known as God. Sometimes I use the Celtic names of, you know, my pagan Celtic ancestors. And sometimes I give God my own name and I speak lovingly to myself. So I know that what is largely described as Christianity, even contemplative Christianity, to me feel like shoes that I'm being forced to wear that don't necessarily fit the shape of my bare feet. And the movements feel too choreographed to express the fullness of my own joy and wonder and creativity and hope. Um, Now, I don't have a problem if those movements and shoes do fit other people, you know, because you got to start learning how to dance somewhere if you want to do the electric slide for the rest of your life, you know, like (laughs) more power to you. 
But for me, the exploration on this season then is not one of deconstructing religion, but rather compost. Like, what do we need to compost? And how do we reverence what needs to compost? So in the reverence of what has brought us to this point, I hope that by exploring these very human decisions that have turned Christianity into an empire, listeners can untangle their own creative agency, rediscover and remember that we have the power to transform ourselves and these systems. So that was a long-winded intro to say, I'm so <laughs> grateful that you're here to dig into such an intense topic. Mm-hmm. Welcome to Unknowing again, Brian. I'm really happy to be back with you. And this really is an important line of reflection. Yeah. So I want to begin by digging into the past a little bit, just to do like a historical drive-by, beginning with the creation or what we might understand as really the birth of the Christian empire. I want to highlight a few pivotal points, um, one of them being the Council of Nicaea. So this council decided that women could no longer be ordained or um, be leaders in the church. Then there was the Council of Laodicea, which further forbade women from priesthood and approaching the altar. And then there was the Fourth Synod of Carthage, which decreed that women couldn't teach men or baptize others. Even though these councils, these moments of decision, removed women from ministry, what that indicates to us, Brian, is that there was a time when women were leading and that they were able yeah. to be countercultural in that way. I want to ask about these councils, these decisions, these turning points, and maybe um, going back a little bit further to the moment when Christianity really truly became an empire under Constantine. Can you share what, in your observation, was taking place in that moment of the religious history of Christianity? Yes. So first, I think it's really smart to go back just as you're doing and try to retell the story and resituate even the story of Christianity in the larger story of what's happening in that period of history. And with very, 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 very few exceptions, almost the whole world was running on various systems of patriarchy. And occasionally there would be outbreaks from patriarchy. Um, So a, a really interesting example for me that comes close to my own religious upbringing I grew up in a little Protestant sect called the Plymouth Brethren. And of course, when you're named the Brethren, that already tells you (laughs) something about patriarchy. But we really prided ourselves on sticking with the Bible and making sure that women were quiet and that they had a covering on their head because there are verses about this in the Bible. (laughs) The irony is that And our favorite chapters in the Bible really almost were 1 Corinthians 11 that has this stuff about women being silent and in 1 Timothy in the New Testament. The irony is you only have to keep telling women to be silent if they're speaking up. (laughs) So the irony is that in the earliest expressions of Christian faith, the remarkable thing that happens is that women start speaking up. And they're given a voice. And it appears that, you know, so many of Jesus' relationships with women, they were given uncommon dignity and leadership. And there's all kinds of stories in the Gospels that indicate this was a real theme. Luke is really keyed in on this, especially among the New Testament writers. So there's this flowering of women having a voice. An interesting backdrop for this is Plato, who obviously was a pretty influential guy by the time Jesus shows up. Plato taught that women could be prophets, but they could not be teachers. 
Because when you're a prophet, all you need is to allow your vocal cords and mouth parts to be surrendered to the possessing deity. All you need is a mouth to be a prophet. But in order to be a teacher, you actually need a brain. Mm -hmm. And women obviously don't have equality in that way in Plato's mind. So women could be oracles or prophets, but they couldn't be teachers. And so it's very clear that when various New Testament writings try to bring women down to the socially acceptable levels, they had been breaking those taboos. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really an important starting point. I think we're right to look at the Council of Nicaea and the conversion of Christianity by Constantine. But I also think it's worth stopping at the end of the first century and realizing by the beginning of the second century, this Jewish movement of Christianity that had expanded to include Gentiles became anti-Semitic. And I think even before Constantine, this anti-Semitic turn And there's all kinds of historical reasons to talk about why that may have happened, psychological, sociological reasons. This turn against its mother, so to speak, to me, marks the beginning of trouble that then flowers far more fully um, in in the fourth century uh, with, with this capitulation to empire. And, you know, I think us living in the aftermath of Donald Trump and watching both Catholic and Protestant religious leaders suck up to him and watching how even today probably one of the most historic fissures in church history is happening in Russia because of the way that leaders of the Russian Orthodox Church are sucking up to Vladimir Putin. We're, we're seeing today parallels, I'm sure, to what was happening in the fourth century. Political power, political privilege, political protection in exchange for becoming the lapdog of the emperor. Yeah, I uh, I want to dive into that and kind of what you say in your book about Trump, where you say we might have expected the crude sexual braggadocio and kick-ass attitudes like these to turn off sincere Christians, but actually traditional Christian theology being a male-dominated project remains easily seduced by patriarchy, which I thought was a stunning kind of summary of what we've seen happen in the last several years, which has shocked so many people that Christianity could so quickly run to the side of what seems like an anti-body agenda. Um, But kind of continuing in this historical unfolding, or I should say like untangling of these moments and decisions, I want to talk about how in the fifth century, what we understand as the Bible was really decided upon by a group of men. And right before we started recording, I was sharing how much I'm enjoying these days digging into my Celtic ancestry and like discovering all of these marvelous myths and legends and stories and really spirituality, a whole worldview. And the joy that I'm experiencing in it, Brian, is just the wild human imagination, just that it's endless and abundant to express the mystery of what is unknown in so many different ways. And I take comfort in that because it reminds me as a human being that we have that capacity now to tell new stories, create new um, language for God. But this moment when the decision was made to kind of, you know, create and form what we now know as the Bible, it somewhat put an ellipsis around, okay, within Christianity, this right here, 
this is the word of God, this set of, of um, letters yes. and books. So talk to us about that moment. And do you see any relevance in that kind of limitation of limiting to these set beliefs or these set books and stories yeah. as having an influence on us in this moment? You know, I don't think that that act in itself necessarily leads to the problems we have now, but the way that the way that we have chosen and been taught to talk about it does create the situation we have now. First of all, you and I, and I'm sure everyone who's listening, we know that opposite things can be true at the same time. There can be a centralizing and a decentralizing force happening at the same time. And in fact, the decentralizing forces can make the centralizing forces nervous and even more committed to their centralization and vice versa, right? So I'm guessing that there were centralizing and decentralizing forces going on in the various Christian communities and movements. And, you know, it's it's been said that in the first century, there was no such thing as Judaism. There were Judaisms. And I think we'd have to say by the second century, there's no such thing as Christianity. There are Christianities. And the desire for political reasons to centralize them, you can see why that becomes very useful to Caesar and to uh, Constantine. If you've got a religious organization that's diverse and diffuse, that's opposing you, that's a lot to keep track of. If you can unify it and make it support you, that's every autocrat's dream to get the camouflage and cover of, of a unified religious leadership, right? But I think in the combining of certain scriptures into the canon, one of the reasons this was being done was because some of the decentralized movements were trying to throw out major parts of the canon. In other words, they were arguing for something narrower. <laughs> and, and what was retained was broader than what other people were arguing for. And I think in the Bible itself, there is so much diversity that the lesson of a compiled biblical canon, in a certain sense, doesn't remove diversity, it preserves diversity. But here's the problem. We always learn the Bible from people, and people participate in traditions, and those traditions have found ways to squeeze and freeze dry and shrink wrap that diversity into ground meat or you know, into one product. And so in a certain sense, the move to canonization could be seen as a move to preserve diversity of voices, but it also could be used to say, we've only got the limited edition truth here. You know, I'm not trying to needlessly complicate it, but I think that's my sense of it. No, it's, it's, it's important because I think sometimes in the process of trying to untangle, we're too quick to label or throw the baby out with the bathwater of entire, you know, what what these moments served in our history, right? And this is why yeah. I talk about reverence, the importance of reverencing what has been, um, yeah. but also reverencing what could be. So it kind of holds yes. that paradoxical uh, flux within which so much can happen. It's potential, it's yes. possibility. But I want to touch on something that you brought up, Brian, because this is where I think a lot of folks are wanting to really make sense of how we got here, which is 
this moment of collusion when Christianity was co-opted by notions of empire, even the structuring yes. of empire. So we see yes. the Pope's centralization, you know, the, the power structure being very much a power over mimicking the Roman Empire. Um, and I want to talk about the difference between structures that maintain power over versus what seems to be the radical invitation of Jesus and other mystics of power with. But it's basically like yeah. once you can see that Christianity became empire, that they became entwined, how that was then repeated <laughs> in the formation of the United States, how that version of Christianity is what survived and influenced the formation of our government. So you have a section in your book where you're quoting Frederick Douglass, and here's what he says. Here's what you quote in, in your book. You say, religion, which favors the rich against the poor, which exalts the proud above the humble, which divides humankind into two classes, tyrants and slaves, which says to the person in chains, stay there, and to the oppressor, oppress on. It is a religion which may be professed and enjoyed by all the robbers and enslavers of humankind. I loved that you included this quote in what you were writing about in your book, you know, Do I Stay Christian? Because you go on and you say, look, because of the American Christian church's complicity in the racist system of crime and blood, as diagnosed by Douglas, the nation, our nation, fell into a civil war full of yet more crime and blood. It's not impossible. It is not even difficult to imagine this 19th century history repeating itself now. So as you were talking about this, uh, this premise that, that Frederick Douglass sets up, you mentioned that there was a foundational paradigm set into motion in the formation of this country with the doctrine of discovery. And I wonder yeah. if you could share what that is and then you know, reflect on how that collusion in particular put certain things into motion in this country. Yes. This is where, you know, when you look at the world through stories, stories, one flows into the other, right? So one of the things that happens is the Christian religion, when it makes a deal with Constantine in the fourth century and becomes the client religion of the Roman Empire, Anyone who believed any of the heresies that got excluded now has a choice to make because if they say that they want to be accepted in this universal Catholic Christian faith, it means now they have to be friends of the Roman Empire. Um, and if you refuse to join the Christian faith, in a sense, you're now an enemy of the Roman Empire. If you're inside the borders, that means one thing. If you're outside the borders, that means another. And there's a really interesting fellow who arises around 600 AD um, named Muhammad. And Muhammad claims that he has a vision of the God of Adam, Eve, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Mary, Jesus, right? He claims that he's had a vision from that God, but he cannot join the Christian religion because he lives in Arabia outside the borders of the Roman Empire. If he were to become a Catholic, he would then, in a sense, be selling out his people to say, I'm on the side of the empire. It, because of that fusion, that sets in motion this rivalry between Islam outside the empire and Christianity inside the empire. And they become these two powerful, missionary, expansive monotheistic religions. And that competition goes on for centuries. 
And in the 1200s, 1300s, 1400s, um, Christians and Muslims are battling it out for dominance over territory. And in 1452, all of us know the date 1492, but in 1452, Pope Nicholas V is trying to fight the Muslims and he needs more money and he needs more wealth. It's expensive to keep fighting these battles, trying to protect Christian Europe from incursions coming up from Turkey all the way up to Austria, you know, eventually um, what we would call Austria. And so Pope Nicholas V issues a kind of a, a document to the king and queen of Portugal. And he says, I want you to go into all the world and make slaves of all nations. I want you to appropriate to yourself all of their wealth, movable and immovable, and reduce the people to perpetual slavery. That's the exact words, to perpetual slavery. Unbelievable. Uh, and of course, the idea is you go out, and he specifically names Saracens, which are Muslims. So go out, but anyone who's not a Christian, you may conquer their land and take their wealth. And of course, he'll get a cut of it, which will help him fight these wars. And then, of course, pretty soon the king and queen of Spain say, well, we went in on that. And the leaders of France, we want in on that. And, uh, and so eventually all the kings of Europe are invited to join part of this doctrine of discovery. You discover lands, plant your flag, claim them for Christ and your king. And in Christ, that includes now the Pope as Christ's representative. And you can just see a whole history is set in motion that leads up to today. And it's a history, as you know, I, I talk about in the book, that not only has a staggering death toll when you really try to say this one set of documents between 1450 and 1490-something, it's hard to imagine any documents that have that kind of a death toll in human history. Um, and then add to that the life toll, because what happened to both the colonized and the colonizers reduced their own humanity in so many ways, even while it made certain people unexplainably rich. That, in a certain sense, you know, when we talk about patriarchy and empire, what both of them are, are systems of domination. And what the doctrine of discovery really was, was a way of saying that God is on the side of domination. Go out there and get them for God. And my gosh, it's still in American politics and Brazilian politics. And, you know, it's still out there, um, uh, Russian politics, because of this religious tradition. And, and of course, it exists in other religions, too. There are Muslim versions of it and mm -hmm. Hindu and Buddhist versions of it and so on, too. It's so enmeshed, though, Brian, and I think this is the part that so many of us struggle with, right? Because this language of power over seems to be woven into yeah. the very threads of, you know, our Judeo-Christian tradition. We have yes. language for God that is predominantly masculine. We have images of God as king, as sovereign, yes. as all-powerful, yes. and we have stories that justify this war yes. on behalf of God, yes. you know, with God on our side, we can defeat yes. the, you know, the evil uh, empires around us. We can, we can, you know, yeah. call out and 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 walls will crumble down because God's on our side. So 
you write about this in your book, which I thought was really clever, that you kind of set up all of these reasons to be against Christianity, reasons why this is so toxic, so disturbing, so <laughs> wrong. And then you talk about all the reasons why people prefer to be still, like feel for, feel that there's still something worth um, discerning as valid to differentiate between the container and the contents. But it's so difficult. What do you say when, and I know you talk about this in the book, but I'd love for you to share for our listeners, when people bring up this idea of, yeah, but this power over structure is woven into the very foundations of this spiritual movement. How do you answer mm -hmm. them when that question comes up? I guess the first thing I'd say is, actually, in the foundations of the movement are resistance to domination. So one way to understand Jesus proclaiming the kingdom of God is not that Jesus is trying to reify kingdom, but that Jesus is trying to, to deconstruct the whole idea of kingdom by saying, I'm going to be a king who doesn't kill anybody, but who gets killed, and who doesn't have servants, but who stoops down and washes the feet of other people, and who doesn't execute, but saves people from execution. Like you just take everything that a king does to demonstrate his power. At the end, in one of the gospels, Jesus says, I don't even want to call you servants anymore. I just want to call you friends. I've told you everything. It's like, I'm not holding any secrets from you. So there's this continual divestiture of that kind of power. And even though I know a lot of times people read Jesus as the hero and Paul as the villain who corrupts Jesus, I think you can make a case that Paul, I'm sure he's got problems like the rest of us. In the book of Philippians, if it was written by Paul or a Pauline figure, um, quotes this amazing piece of poetry in chapter two of that epistle, where the reason why Jesus is special is because Jesus doesn't use power over, but rather divests himself of power. So this rejection of that kind of power over, it seems to me, is truly, truly foundational. Um, even what you know, some people now believe is the earliest Christian creed in the book of Galatians, in Christ there is no male or female, uh, Jew or, or Greek, slave or free, is the eradication of structures of domination based on gender, based on wealth, based on ethnicity, based on power, and so on. So I think that is worth saying. And then I would also say in Christian history, there is what our mutual friend Richard Rohr calls the alternative orthodoxy or the minority report that keeps going back to this kind of liberative rather than domination paradigm. I would also say that one of the problems is if we want to reject something as having a viable future because it's tainted by domination and corruption, it's very hard to find anything that isn't, right? Yeah. Um, and so that taint is everywhere. But then the last thing I'd say is I understand many people will and should and must disaffiliate from the Christian religion. They have good reasons for doing so. For many people, the Christian religion is like an abusive family. Mm. And for their own safety, they have to get some distance from it. I'm not trying to say that people must, but right. I, I think I am trying to say it's not as simple as saying throw away Christianity and we've solved the problem, you know? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Uh, especially when there are some good resources for dealing with the problem. 
it wouldn't that just be another power over move to just completely try to atomic bomb our history because it's too complex? And how many of us have yeah. gone through that maybe in our early 20s when that need to be against and differentiate ourselves is so strong? Yes. We have a violent yes. tendency almost of just wanting to cut these pieces of ourselves or affiliations away. What I appreciate about what you're bringing up, Brian, is something that I subscribe to this belief, to this idea that Jesus was revolutionary in ushering in an alternative paradigm in the midst of a, a paradigm of power over. I'm a huge fan of Beatrice Bruteau's work, and she has this book called The Holy Thursday Revolution. And she says, you know, what was happening in these moments where, as you said, Jesus is washing the feet, is, you know, I call you friends speaking, uh, not only speaking to women, but elevating them as disciples, um, she yeah. says he was ushering in a communion paradigm. So she says, in this yeah. moment, Jesus brings in an alternative worldview, one in which the divine does not flow in a one direction of power over, but flows yes. ecologically and reciprocally in power yes. with. Um, yes. And yet, that being true, I mean... Damn it, if we're not still way more comfortable projecting all the power. So let's yes. go ahead and make Jesus the ultimate sovereign and continue to call him Lord of Lords. I mean, it's just like yes, 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 <laughs> missing yes, the yes, forest yes. for the trees. Yes. But l let's continue on our kind of historical journey, discussing these pivotal moments and decisions. And I want to talk about a moment that obviously has a lot of significance for us today, um, which is sort of the birth of the religious right in the 1970s. So most yeah. people believe that that was born from a direct response to Roe versus Wade. And now I'm quoting an article by Randall Balmer here. He says, in fact, it wasn't until 1979, a full six years after Roe, that evangelical leaders at the behest of conservative activist Paul Weyrich seized on abortion not for moral reasons— but as a rallying cry to deny President Jimmy Carter a second term. Why? Because the anti-abortion crusade was more palatable than the religious right's real motive, which was protecting segregated schools. Yeah. So talk to us about this moment of antibody as antichrist, because this obviously has a huge impact on our present reality. Yes, it really does. And if, in fact, as you know, in, in this most recent book, I have a couple of chapters where I talk about how a, the issue of abortion allows people a kind of shortcut to innocence, where we, we, we uphold an unborn child as the ultimate innocent body. And by, by uh, saying that we're on the side of the innocent uh, unborn body, we, in a sense, get a transfusion of innocence into ourselves. And, um, and that has, it, it's incredibly powerful psychologically and obviously socially and politically and economically because Paul Weyrich knew it raises a whole lot of money. But what it does, whenever you create a group of people who are bound together first around their loyalty to an innocent victim that then leads to a need for revenge against those who they see as the victimizers of their innocent victim. It allows you to commit almost any atrocity against the villain because the villain is dehumanized. It's a very toxic drug and we can see it in so many different situations. You know, when I was in my 20s, I taught English as a second language to Cambodian refugees. And I remember a family telling me that the oldest son in their family, he was a teenager, 
and he had been killed. I won't even describe the brutal way that he was killed, but he had an education. And in order to have education, he needed to read. And in order to read, he needed to wear glasses. And what happened is gangs of kids were told anyone who wears glasses is part of the elite. Mm. And they're the people who oppress the poor farmers. And so you can imagine getting a group of 13 and 14-year-old farm boys who have been told they're oppressed. They're the innocent ones, and they need to now go and punish the people who are parasites uh, exploiting them, right? It's just where this goes in human psyche is utterly predictable and ugly, but it works again and again and again, it works. And one of the terrible things about it is it can be perpetuating because you can take the people who see themselves as the good guys and make them the bad guys, which is why Nietzsche said, beware when fighting the monster, lest you uh, become the monster. But we have all of these cycles at play. And maybe the only other thing I'll say that is especially relevant to Christian fundamentalism in our particular cultural setting in America at this moment is that white people have a lot of shame in our history of white people. And that shame was very successfully marginalized and suppressed, but it's harder to marginalize and suppress that information. So when that information comes up and people feel shame, one of the antidotes to shame is to find fast and easy innocence. So if what we keep doing is telling people, you, you lazy, morally bankrupt person who's truly a racist and you're just looking for a shortcut to innocence, we heap shame upon them. Now, maybe one out of a hundred say, gosh, you know, you're right. I really should change. This is stupid. But 99 of them more than likely feel more shame, which makes them more desperate for innocence. And we end up creating these perpetuating cycles where the more shame, just like the more fear we pump into a system, now the system is shamed and fearful. What's it going to do? Shamed and fearful systems don't typically behave very well. Hmm. Well, they're also, and correct me if you don't agree with this, but these shame and fear-based systems operate under the premise of very strong dualities because these dualities create uh, an opportunity for us to be on one side and them to be on yes. another, or for good yes, to be yes. in, on one level yes. and evil to be, you know, the opposition. And within that very strong binary is that ingraining of fear of what would happen if those two yeah. binaries were not true, <laughs> if it were yes. more complex than that, yes. if it were, you know, and I, as I was mentioning to you, I'm, I'm enjoying digging into all of these very, as it turns out, ancient fairy tales. You know, these things have been around yes. for thousands of years. Scientists have now found some of these are older than Greek mythology. And yes. what I love about these folk tales is that the trickster or the hag on the path are very often divine figures in disguise. They're actually actively bringing awareness into the main character that transforms them or tricks them off the path that they were on, the unconscious path, into this adventure where they actually discover their their true gifts, their true power, their, their true personhood. So with that, we have an image then for divinity that's not quite so easily categorized as good, yes. power over versus evil. Yes. And I want to ask you then about 
and I know you've written about this, we've spoken about this in the past, but really how strong the herd and hive mentality is in creating that and sustaining that duality to the point where even our two-party system is an example of that binary at play. Because so long as we are within the walls of our tribe, our group, our kingdom, we don't have to relate with the wild. We can subdue it. We can control it. We can conquer it. We can make war against it. But talk to us, Brian, about the revelation of this moment in terms of the ecological reality that these binary categories may not really work for us moving forward. Well, you know, really human civilization had deep, deep ecological wisdom before the doctrine of discovery. But one of the things that the doctrine of discovery did is sent out uncivilized people in the sense that they were unecological. So they don't really know how to live in sustainable cities. It sent out unecological people to dominate ecological people, wipe them out, and render their ecological ways of life useless and irrelevant. And so now we inherited that history, and now we have to figure out how do we build an ecological way of life. I mean, we could talk about fossil fuels and all the rest, but in some ways, it goes back to the agricultural revolution. When we discovered that we could intensely plant fields and produce high but unsustainable yields that would then allow more of us to survive. So there'd be more of us and we could take some more fields from the people in the next valley if we were willing to kill them or make them our slaves, right? Suddenly you realize this history is way, way deep Mm -hmm. uh, in us. And in some ways you might say that we are going to have to have the deepest revolution in all of human evolution, Mm -hmm. which is a way of thinking about how a sustainable number of us survive on a small planet. It's a whole new thing. And one of the little phrases I use in the book is, you know, a phrase of the ecological movement, there is no away. You can't throw anything away. Mm -hmm. You can't throw toxic waste away you can't throw your enemy away. Mm. And boy, as soon as that sinks in, it changes everything. It baptizes you into unknowing (laughs) because so many of our solutions only work based on throwing something away. Well, this brings up what I believe is another um, attribute of the paradigm of power over, which is scarcity. Power over works so long as we believe that we are in a paradigm of scarcity. In other words, that there isn't enough, I have to hoard, I have to steal, I have to make more. It's this very competitive worldview. And the shift that you're describing of this rewilding, which I also love that you use that term, when there is no away, then we are in a relational framework. In other words, we cannot cut apart or shut down or make something magically disappear. Then we have to learn how to relate to it or be in relationship with it, which to me feels like kind of coming back to the premise of what Jesus was saying, which is this communal paradigm of being in relationship with. Yes, I love the scripture, unless a grain falls and dies, 
to me, that feels very apt for this conversation about religion and empire. And, and in particular, how do we compost and allow to die what needs to die so that we can give birth to what could be? And understanding how deep, as we've been exploring in this conversation, you start tugging on this thread, Brian, and it's like the whole damn sweater is yeah. falling apart. Because it's yeah. like, oh, and here's patriarchy, and here's colonialism, and here's domination paradigm, and here's the agricultural. <laughs> so for listeners who are currently despairing and considering that really this is the end of the world, and it might be, what I love about this image of a grain falling to the earth and dying or even the phrase of composting, you know, the vision of composting religion, is that it's not so much about staying or not staying, because we're not talking about territories anymore. It's about dying to what has been to make room for what could be. Yes. And that radical commitment for me is about generativity. It's about transitioning from structures of power over to mycelial realm networks of power with, <laughs> you know? It's so juicy. Yes. And I guess I'm not afraid of death and resurrection because, I don't know, some, some brilliant teacher taught us that that was necessary, <laughs> as has every spiritual tradition from all time, yes. going back to my own Celtic ancestry. So, if dying is actually a practice of faith— of allowing a new imagination to shape better belief structures. Could it be, Brian, that we could say that maybe the point of religion is to move us beyond religion? Could we say that maybe mm. it's to birth us into a new hopeful future where, yes, we're going to, we're, we're not throwing away, but we're moving through some kind of birth canal in all of this and a hopeful future? So, yes. What do you see as possible if we believe that to be true, that religion yeah. exists to push us through religion, not keep us in? Well, so much of this depends on how we define religion. And uh, so let me play with this a little bit, uh, Brie, because I think you're onto something really important and useful. So if we look at the Bible in the Adam and Eve story. There are no temples, no priests. There's just naked communion with God. And it happens in the cool of the day. It's, it's just a natural experience. Um, and then, you know, religion develops and it really develops around the patriarch. And so the patriarch has an experience with God and everyone under the patriarch's control now has to conform to that experience of God. And then you might say that that religion lives for a while and then Moses comes along, who in a certain sense is a patriarch, but the most important thing he does is not have sons. We don't talk about the sons of Moses the way we talk about the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses gives law. And so you could say that patriarchal religion dies and religion of law rises or comes out of the compost. And then religion of law goes on for a long time. And then these figures called the prophets rise up and they say, you know what? You can keep all your laws and be a jerk and you can follow all your laws and you're not taking care of the widow and the orphan. What good is your law without compassion? And so the prophets arise. You see, each form of religion, it seems then, is critiqued. Well, even that form of religion doesn't disappear, but a new form arises 
out of that. In fact, for the last 300 years or so, a lot of people have had this dream. It's a, it's in John Lennon's Imagine, right? Yeah. Which I think we all em- have a certain empathy with. Imagine, you know, no nations. Imagine no religion. Well, if you really do imagine no religion, what are you saying is gone? The, the desire to think about the meaning of life, mm-hmm. uh, the desire to think about what's right and what's wrong, the desire to develop rituals and practices to help us celebrate what our deepest values are, uh, systems of teaching and learning to help us pass on our best wisdom and critique it to improve it, right? Mm-hmm. What do we want to be throwing out there? And And so what I might say is, that if a form of religion does its work, it prepares you to graduate to the next form. I personally think that's why in one of the gospels, Jesus says, look, don't think I've come to throw out the law and the prophets. In my mind, two different stages of religion that were both existent in his day. I haven't come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill the meaning to help them give birth to the next thing. Those are my thoughts. Now, if we decide that the word religion has become so polluted that we have to come up with a different word, well, that's fine. And that, that certainly might, might be the case. But at the end of the day, I think it's impossible for me to imagine humanity that isn't taking seriously a quest to explore what is beyond the easily knowable and provable. Mm, I agree. I think, I wonder if you agree with this, perhaps what is being composted at this moment is the domination paradigm. Yes. Is the paradigm of of power over, which, Brian, I mean, so much of your work and your writing, when you've talked about the freedom of uh, finding this symbiotic whole and harmonization of other religious traditions, and even ecologically as well, like to, to understand that everything is singing this, this great harmonic melody. But in a paradigm of power over anything that is not the kingdom within which we are ensconced in these walls is a threat. So when I consider Christianity, I don't feel the need to be against what has brought me to this moment. I feel gratitude, but I haven't stayed put. I haven't stayed in the walls. Like I've allowed the fragrance or the the melody, the the music of my belief, of my faith, of my hope to grow wilder, (laughs) bigger than even the categories that I was given, even within contemplative Christianity. The chord has only gotten bigger and more complex and more harmonically beautiful. Mm. The more I have allowed other stories to shape that melody, to to bring it to a fullness. And so is that what's composting in this moment? What are your views, I guess, on what might be the transitional stage? I like that you're saying, you know, religion evolves. And if religion means to bind back what is broken, to religare, religare, the Latin of bringing back together or making whole. But I guess I guess I, I want to put a caveat there to say that what most people mean by binding back together is, is actually trying to rein in life or hold it back or control it or keep it within the boundaries and borders of what makes sense to us, right? So that's not the version of religion that I can connect with. So if religare just means to heal into wholeness, then I suppose 
I want to actively participate in anything that brings back wholeness, freedom, liberation, and wild imagination, because that brings us back to a place of empowered creativity. Whereas we're not sitting here worshiping the past, we're not putting, uh, you know, every past male theologian on a throne. I'm sorry, I'm just not that impressed by, by these theologians. <laughs> and I guess this is one of the issues that I had, you know, I, mean, I remember even in the living school with Richard, I mean, I would just be like, yeah, great, good job, Bonaventure. So, <laughs> and it's yeah. not- How a, did that work out? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's not a disrespect to what has been, yeah. but rather my radical commitment in who we are now, my belief that we too- can be the voices of telling the next phase of stories, of shifting into a different paradigm. So I don't really have a question there. Maybe it's just, would you, in closing, share what brings you hope in this moment when there is so much that seems so full and is so full of despair and is in such turmoil? And what do you see as the composting opportunity of new life growing through the cracks anyway? Bree, honestly, I, I just think of what you are doing at this moment. You're hosting important conversations and you're, you're reading and thinking and studying and you're trying to offer what you have to other people and you're not only accepting people of one gender or one religion or one skin color or one political party. You're doing things because you feel the creative urge to do them. And you have this faith that that creativity somehow will contribute a few nutrients to the compost pile that will help something new and better grow from that. And you're doing that in some little town in Afghanistan, there's a woman who's decided to start a school for girls to learn because even though the Taliban is uncomfortable with girls learning, she knows how she benefited from an education. And she's going to, if nothing else, have some books and teach some girls to read and let them have a place where they can read and talk about what they read. And in a thousand different ways, people are doing that. That doesn't mean that I'm hopeful in the sense that I think everything's going to be fine so we can all go back to our previously scheduled complacency. But it does mean that nobody has an excuse to not say, what is my creative contribution to the environment? And, you know, in a certain way, this is where composting is not that different from what everything else that happens. So I'm sitting here looking out the window on this beautiful sunny summer day and sunlight is hitting leaves and leaves are committing photosynthesis and photosynthesis is producing things that I need to survive. And in a certain sense, I think having faith in God is having faith in that life process, just as you said so beautifully before. It reminds me of that line by Mary Oliver where she says, attention is the beginning of devotion. Yes. And in so many ways, Brian, I feel that that kind of devotion that you're describing, which is devotion to the never-ending 
capacity for imagination to break through and make new where there was no way before, make a new way where there wasn't one, to plant a seed where there was barren soil or exhausted soil, to break apart foundations that are crowding the rooted connectedness of our relational wholeness. And um, the invitation in that way, for me, feels hopeful because in looking back at this historical kind of really fast drive-by, my hope is that listeners can at least be reminded of, to remember, to be membered to, the recognition that we also have the power to to shift these realities and tell these stories in different ways. Yes. I want to thank you for joining me today. I want to close with something that you said in your book. You say... By reducing its mysteries to beliefs, by codifying those beliefs and systems, and by defining itself by those belief systems, it has rendered itself a paradox. And you're speaking of Christianity here, a ship that floats but doesn't sail. And as we consider what is ours to do, I can't help but take that imagery and just invite our listeners to sail the damn boat. Whatever the belief systems are that make up our boats, to have the courage to actually put them to use. Because if we are in a paradigm of power with, then we are empowered to be just as radical as Jesus was to usher in alternative paradigms into this one. And I hope that we will. Amen. Amen. Always a pleasure to be in conversation with you, Bree. And thank you for the good work you're doing. Mm. And uh, I, I loved getting to talk with you. Thanks. Thank you so much, Brian. So, we're learning how to not rely on our maps so much, our kingdoms of walls (laughs) that are trying to keep the wild at bay, and considering what needs to be composted instead, what needs to be surrendered to unknowing or let go of to make room for a rich, fertile soil of what could be. Here are a few pieces of True North wisdom I'm taking with me from this conversation. Everything, everything, everything is political. When we look back at the history of Christianity, at least the versions that are available to us, depending on who we're listening to, we can see the influence of uh, strategic political decisions at play in the shaping of this religion as empire. My hope is to share these things to engender a curiosity within you that leads to compassion right? Because that is the posture within which we can look at our history or look at history, our histories, compassionately, recognizing the forces that were at play, which are almost always the desire to create control, (laughs) which is to have power over, and then to collectively reconsider how we might organize differently or tell different stories, stories and ways of relating that help us become more connected to each other and more connected to the earth. Second piece of True North wisdom that I found really helpful was our discussion around the difference between domination paradigms and communion paradigms. I thought that was a really helpful frame to be able to say, okay, you know, this mystic from Galilee, this revolutionary teacher had a a completely different alternative paradigm that he was trying to operate from. 
And yet, classic human beings, when we try to create an institution out of a mystic, what do we do? <laughs> we create a hierarchy of power. That makes sense. We're still totally doing the same stuff today. But this was helpful for me because it's clear that religion as we know it is singing a swan song here. It, it's versions of it are needing to go and are needing to die. And we don't need to be afraid of that because what we're saying is not that we're gonna just go without any helpful paradigm or set of teachings or guiding principles of values or even examples of embodied mystics or people who have accessed a way of living love that is fully alive. What we're saying is that we need to begin to pull apart the contents in the container a bit to be able to recognize that when the container stops serving the contents, we got to build a different container. Like, <laughs> it's just some part of me finds this really funny. It's sort of just like we're all walking around wearing, you know, shoes that fit us when we were kids or something. And we're, we're like barely able to take steps, let alone move and dance. And we're just, we just can't even conceive of the idea of freedom of movement because we're just wearing these stupid shoes that don't fit anymore. And it's like at a certain point, I'm like, y'all, the music is great. The music is great. The music isn't the problem. The problem is the shoes. <laughs> that metaphor might only work for me and like two other people. So I don't know if that was helpful for you. But my point here, we need to discern the contents from the container so that we can determine, you know, what part of this is nourishing for our lives to be enlivened now for us to actually be fully animated, to be the most creative versions of ourselves possible. Um, the most loving and related, deeply connected versions of ourselves as possible. And what parts of this whole experiment need to be let go of and composted. So in my own life, I find this distinction between what is domination and what is communion as a real helpful tool <laughs> for discernment, um, discerning what organizations I want to uh, involve myself with or or participate with? Um, what communities do I want to join my voice and song to? Um, and what do I want to orient my life around? What is my ultimate value? Is it belonging or is it bravery? <laughs> Brian McLaren has such a gracious way, gracious and spacious way of holding paradox and holding the complexity of all of this, of not throwing things away. I love that he said that. That's probably the third piece of True North wisdom. There is no away. <laughs> we don't get to cut parts of ourselves or our complicated, tragic history away. It's only by welcoming it all back in and remembering being to be membered to the wholeness of it, and not just in the past, but in the present. I mean, everything around us right now, whether it's specific religious camps or our politics, if, if you're living in the United States of America, but elsewhere in the world as well, it's binaries. It's you're in or you're out, you're with us or you're against us. So what does it mean to live in a more ecologically related way? And that's not some type of like sentimental abstraction because I think the more connected and plugged in that we are to our own bodies and to our relatedness to all bodies, the more enlivened we become, the more activated we are. 
to try to create a world or manifest a world in which all of these bodies can thrive. That's it for today's episode. Listen, I told you this was going to be an intense season. (laughs) Don't say I didn't warn you. Coming up on next week's episode of Unknowing, I wanted to get into, in a little bit more detail, the experience of women within the Christian tradition and the collusion of empire. So I reached out to author Karen Jo Torgerson, who wrote a book called When Women Were Priests. We got into some juicy stuff. Can't wait for you to hear it. As you know, I always like to close my episodes with a quote or a bit of poetry. For season three of Unknowing, I've chosen a few lines by David White. You must learn one thing. The world was made to be free in. Give up on all other worlds except the one to which you belong. Sometimes it takes darkness and the sweet confinement of your aloneness to learn anything or anyone that does not bring you alive is too small for you.